0: I want to thank you guys for singing out, especially during that last song. That was glorious. I really was blessed by uh, being able to sing God's praises with you. Well, we're in a new chapter in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 11. And uh, this is a... Another new phase in Jesus' ministry, and that's because now he has not just 12 disciples with him, but he has 12 apostles with him, his authorized representatives, his uh, commissioned ambassadors. And that took place in Matthew chapter 10, and uh, chapter 11, and verse 1 is a transitional verse, so let's just look at that. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, whom he had called to be apostles in chapter 10, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. So remember that in chapter 10, Jesus had commissioned the apostles to the office of apostle, and then he sent them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, not to the Gentiles. So this was not the great commission. But then here in verse 1, we see that uh, Jesus himself went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. So by commissioning the 12 apostles, it's not like Jesus took a break and he was letting them do all the work. No, it was a way of advancing the work. It was a way of multiplying Christ's ministry, and that's what happened. But uh, we're not tracking the apostles at this point. We're tracking Jesus in Matthew's narrative. So what ends up happening here, though, is even though there's been this transition, now we have apostles on the scene, um, there's a familiar name, a familiar person who reemerges, and that's John the Baptist. And uh, he's really the main character here in this passage. And there's uh, two aspects of John the Baptist that are highlighted, both his weakness and his greatness. And I trust that you'll see what I mean so, first of all, um, we have John's weakness explained to us in terms of his doubt. So, point number one in your outline is John's doubt communicated and, and answered. So, we looked at verse one, verse two. Here's John's doubt communicated. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples to Jesus. So let's get our bearings a little bit in terms of the events that are going on. Uh, Look back briefly with me to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12. Remember, John the Baptist is introduced to us in chapter 3, his ministry and his baptism. And then in Matthew chapter uh, 4, excuse me, in verse 12, the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, we read this. Now, when he, that is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. So John's been arrested since Matthew chapter 4. And then looking forward to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14 takes place later than chapter 11. But in Matthew chapter 14, uh, Matthew takes a Historical look, a look back at the arrest of John to give more details. So, John chapter 14 and verse 3, that's all we'll look at for now. For Herod, and that's Herod Antipas, by the way, for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And he's going to go on to explain. That the reason that happened, that John was on uh, Herod's bad side, is because he told him that he shouldn't have his brother's wife. And that landed him in jail, and he's not going to get out of jail alive. He's going to end up being beheaded, but we'll get there in due time when we get to Matthew chapter 14. So, all that just as a Reminder of the current events going on in verse uh, in verse two. So here's John the Baptist. He's in prison, and he sends he sends word to Jesus by his disciples, his own followers. And here's what that message was: Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? I've read um, at least one commentator whom I love, and I usually find very helpful. And uh, he, along with other commentators, believe that John the Baptist sent these disciples of his to Jesus for the sake of those disciples because John had an inkling that he wasn't going to make it out of jail alive, and he wanted to prepare his disciples for that eventuality. But I don't think that that's what's going on. And the reason I don't think that's what's going on is because of what Jesus ends up saying in verse 4, go and tell John what you hear and see. Jesus answers John. So I believe that this is a sincere question from John the Baptist. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? That's astonishing. This is the same man who said, Behold the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the same man who said about Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's it's the same man who said about Jesus, the the straps of his sandal, I'm not worthy to loose." And now this same man, the same forerunner of Jesus, Sends word to Jesus, asking him, Are you the one? Should we be looking for someone else? Have we missed? This is real doubt on the part of John the Baptist. And I don't think that we can sugarcoat that. But we also shouldn't be too hard on him because I think we can all relate. When we're in a really tough spot and life hurts, we're in a prison of our suffering. And in that suffering, we cannot see how God is keeping his promises, maybe. We cannot see how this can possibly be God's plan. It's in those times, in hard circumstances, that our faith is challenged. And we ask God honest questions like that. So we shouldn't be too hard on John the Baptist, but we also shouldn't try to explain this away. No, this is real doubt on the part of John. And it is a lesson, isn't it, that even the best of men are still just men at best. There's no such thing as rock stars in this, uh, the story of faith. There's, there's Jesus, He's perfect, he's holy, he's worthy of our love and devotion and worship. Everyone else is a fallen but redeemed creature. Very imperfect and a work in progress, even John the Baptist. But the story goes on. So this is John's doubt Communicated now in verses four and five, answered John's doubt. Answered and Jesus answered them, these two disciples whom John the Baptist sent Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. About 18 months, about a year and a half, have transpired since the arrest of John the Baptist, and Jesus' public ministry is now in full swing. And Jesus is going around showing that he is the promised Messiah. Jesus is demonstrating in his mighty works and in his teaching that he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, and that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It has started. Lots of incredible things have happened. Jesus says, go and tell John simply what you've heard and seen. And Jesus' words stand for us today. There's a sense in which this is what we're called to do as we are called to be his witnesses. Where we we are called to, uh, in whatever capacity God enables us, to open up the word of God and explain it to people, help people in their understanding. But the main thing job of a witness is to witness, to say what you have seen and heard. We have a reliable historical record of what Jesus did, not only in his earthly ministry, but in his death and resurrection. We have the whole story. We have the testimony of eyewitnesses, the documented reporting of Contemporary journalists like Luke corroborating historical markers, reliable manuscript treasuries from different places and times throughout the intervening 2,000 years. And on top of that, we can see what Jesus is doing today. We know from personal experience what Jesus has done in our own lives through his word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're called to tell people that. Don't be fancy. Don't be intimidated. Just go and tell what you hear and see. Then Jesus wraps up that response in verse 6. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That word translated offended is the Greek word skandalizo. And maybe you can detect in that word, the English word scandal or scandalize. Skandalizo. Blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. And that goes on the part of the witnesses and the hearers. We should not be scandalized by Jesus, his person and his work. If we're really believers, if we've really been saved, then we should be set free from being scandalized by that story. And on the other side of the coin, Blessed are those hearers who hear about the message of the gospel, who Jesus is and what he's done, and are not scandalized by that. That's a sign of the work of the Holy Spirit, if you're able to receive the message of the gospel and not be offended. But in any case, here we have John's doubt communicated and answered. You might think that after an encounter like this, I mean, put yourself in Jesus's shoes. You might think that after an encounter like this, you get this message from John the Baptist. By the way, his disciples, John's disciples, had to travel by foot some 100 miles to bring this question to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? You might think that what Jesus would say next would be kind of what I said. Well, at the end of the day, even the best of men are still just men at best. What a disappointment John the Baptist is to me. He started off on the right foot. Ah! The disappointment that here he is in jail And now when he's under pressure, he caves. That's not what Jesus goes on to say. And it's pretty remarkable. Very gracious. And so really the rest of the passage has to do with Jesus communicating John's greatness. So notice in verses 7 through 9, as Jesus communicates John's greatness, what Jesus has to say about uh, John's manliness. And they went away, verse 7, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds. So these disciples come and ask Jesus that question before a crowd or crowds. So he began to speak concerning John. John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? And he's referring to John's wilderness in the Judean desert around the Jordan River. A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses, and this may be Uh, sort of a veiled stab at Herod Antipas, who at this very moment has John under arrest and he's dressed like a king. What then did you go out to see? He continues in verse 9. A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Jesus is laying out here in terms of where John ministered and how he ministered, how he looked, how he conducted himself. He was not fragile, weak, or vacillating like a a reed in the wind. He wasn't a wimp. He was standing up and boldly preaching, preaching a message of repentance. Preaching a message of coming judgment. And he's doing it all in the Judean wilderness. He wasn't a wimp then. And he's not a wimp now. That's basically what Jesus is saying. And in verse 9. He says he's a prophet, and he was a strong, steadfast, manly spokesman for God, in spite of the pressure in the culture, especially from the Jewish religious leaders, in opposition. It wasn't a popular message. He stood his ground, and he remained faithful as God's spokesman to preach God's Message. And he's still a prophet at this moment in time, in spite of his present weakness. And that's encouraging because this affirms to us from Jesus that momentary lapses under the pressure of persecution and suffering can't undo a lifetime of faithfulness. I love that. And then Jesus also says at the end of verse 9 that John the Baptist was more than a prophet. He was a prophet. In fact, as we're going to see, he's the last in the line of Old Testament prophets. But he's more than a prophet. And the commentators emphasize two ways in which John is more than a prophet. One is that he's not only a prophet in terms of foretelling, but he's the subject of prophecy himself. We're going to look in a minute at Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. He's also. Prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. He's the subject of prophecy himself. Plus, here's another facet in which John is more than a prophet. What did the prophets do? At the end of the day, their whole purpose in life yes, they were spokesmen for God, but taken as a, as a whole, they were all about directing people to Jesus. That's what Jesus said. These are they that testify of me when referring to the law and the prophets. But uh, John was more than a prophet in the sense that he was right there in the physical presence of Jesus, the promised Messiah, God incarnate, and he was able to point to him personally, directly, and say, this is the one. This is the Messiah. This is the Lamb of God. He could point people directly and personally to Jesus. In that sense as well, he's more than a prophet. So his manliness. And then Jesus uh, exalts John's place in prophecy, verse 10. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Um, in your own time, you can look it up, but you'll uh, this is a, a reference to Malachi chapter three and verse one. But if you look at the two passages uh, here, Matthew 11 and verse 10 and Malachi 3 and verse 1, it's not a word-for-word quote because that's not what Jesus is doing. It's not just quoting. He's interpreting. He's saying, this is what it means. You you, you pull together Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Pull together all that the Old Testament has to say about the forerunner of the Messiah and the Messiah himself. This is what it means Behold, I send my messenger before your face. The messenger here, God is the speaker. The messenger is John the Baptist as the forerunner of the Messiah and before your face, the I think that's the antecedent of that personal pronoun, your, that is the Messiah, that's Jesus, who will pre- prepare your way before you. And that was the role of John the Baptist, to prepare the way of the Lord as the Lord's forerunner. But this is interesting if you think about it because the implication, thinking about Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 again, the implication is that the Messiah, Jesus, himself is Yahweh, the Lord. John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way of the Lord of hosts. And in fulfillment of that prophecy, John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of hosts. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is Yahweh, the Lord. So John's place in prophecy. Then Jesus goes on to talk about John's greatness In terms of his rank among the prophets, there's there's a lot here in verses 11 through 15. So, verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So, when I say that Jesus is talking about the greatness of John the Baptist. I'm not making that up. Jesus is talking about the greatness of John the Baptist. He just said it. And he's not only the greatest prophet, which he is, but Jesus even goes beyond that to say among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He was a great man. But remember that this great man did say about Jesus that he, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. The straps of his sandals I'm not worthy to unloose. So what great men and women, boys and girls, do is that they humble themselves in the sight of the Lord and they magnify Jesus Christ. That's true greatness. And that's what John the Baptist did, and Jesus commended him for that. But his rank among the prophets isn't done there. Second half of verse 11, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he so we're talking about the greatness of John the Baptist but Jesus pauses to say as great as John the Baptist is someone who is in my kingdom in its more arrived and present and fulfilled state is even greater than John the Baptist. So let me explain that. And this goes back again to uh, Jesus, uh, John being more than a prophet. Remember, his his greatness was mainly due to his role as the one who's more than a prophet. He pointed people directly and personally to Christ, like no other Old Testament prophet could. But at that time, when John the Baptist was ministering and Jesus breaks onto the scene. The the kingdom of God was just entering into history. Since then, the kingdom of God has advanced by leaps and bounds since the ministry of John the Baptist. I mean, think about it. In a few short years, there's all of Jesus' earthly ministry, which he tells John's disciples to go and tell John about. John had missed out on it because he was was in jail. There's there's Jesus' death on the cross. He died on the cross for our sins in fulfillment of the scriptures. Jesus rose from the dead. He was raised for our justification, which was also prophesied, by the way. And then after spending about 40 days with his disciples, after having been raised from the dead, Jesus ascended bodily to the right hand of the majesty on high. And from that place of exaltation and glory and power and authority, he sent the Holy Spirit to empower his people to be his witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so believers who are in this current phase of the kingdom have a fuller revelation of the person and work of Jesus Christ to point people to. We've got the whole story. And in that sense, even the least disciple in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. But Jesus goes on to say more about John's rank among the prophets. Verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, roughly 18 months, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Um, Commentators are all over the place. on on this verse. And I'm not going to take you over the river and through the woods if you don't mind. First of all, uh, those words in the ESV, that is a correct translation, but uh, as in any language, the, the Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, English, Espanol, Um, It's not just the definition of the words. It's usage because words can have a range of meanings. There can be multiple definitions, in fact, of a particular word. So literally, verse 12 is a correct interpretation or a translation of the original text. But I think that the New Living Translation does a good job of interpreting the verse, verse 12, to say what it means. The New Living Translation says, And from the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. And violent people are attacking it. I believe that that's the sense of the words that Jesus said. And in fact, we've been seeing that since Jesus' arrival on the scene. In fact, even before that. The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. I mean, in that manger in Bethlehem, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The the light of the world came into this world. The creator inhabited a created human body and soul. And then there was John the Baptist saying that repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then there's Jesus doing and saying all that he did. There's this increased demonic activity. It's as if if Satan and his demons are, are laying low for hundreds of years. Not that they're inactive, but they're sort of laying low because there's no disturbance. Satan is thinking to himself, all is well in my kingdom. And then there's this There's this 400 years of silence between Malachi and the opening of Matthew's gospel. And then Satan realizes that his kingdom is under attack. The Messiah is coming. And so he tries to have the Messiah killed when he's just a baby. And who is this forerunner, this prophet, this one who's more than a prophet preaching in the Judean wilderness? I know, I'm going to work behind the scenes and have him arrested and killed. Et cetera, et cetera. And that opposition to the kingdom of heaven from the kingdom of darkness was only getting started. Violent people would continue attacking the kingdom of heaven to the point of murdering Jesus himself and having him crucified. But so certain is the kingdom of heaven's advance that all of those attacks from the forces of darkness are only going to be turned against the devil and his angels and used in the favor of the advance of the kingdom itself. It's amazing. Even the death of Jesus. The devil thought he had an amazing victory in the death of Jesus, but it was the message of the cross itself. It was the death of Jesus that actually dealt the death blow to Satan, to the devil. He fell into his own trap. But still, believers need to be aware that the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. That was why John the Baptist was in jail. Jesus is explaining why he's in jail. Jesus is still answering the original question from John. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? The fact that John's in jail, Jesus is saying, is evidence that a cosmic war has broken out since my coming into this world, which is proof of who I am. I indeed am the one who was promised come. And so the fact that John's in jail doesn't mean that Jesus should be doubted. It's proof that Jesus is the one. But we are talking about the greatness of John the Baptist in terms of his position or his rank among the prophets. So now look in verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So John was the last of a long line of Old Testament prophets, but he wasn't just last chronologically. He was the last in terms of the grand finale. He did point people personally to Jesus. Then he says in verse 14, and if you are willing to accept it, He is Elijah who is to come. And Pastor Kevin read that promise, that prophecy earlier from Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, that Malachi would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Well, John, John the Baptist was not, literally Elijah. He wasn't like the reincarnation of Elijah. This wasn't the second coming of Elijah in terms of a bodily second coming. Instead, um, John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And you can read about that in Luke chapter 1 and verse 17. So, according to Jesus, Elijah, in the person of John the Baptist, John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah has come. He's announced the arrival of the Messiah in the messianic kingdom. And the, the judgment that Malachi talks about is because those who reject the Messiah are under God's judgment. The Messiah is our ticket out from under God's judgment. So when we reject the Messiah, like the Jewish religious leaders did, we reject our deliverance from judgment. So there's still judgment to be faced. And then Jesus is going to come again, which will finalize that judgment. And in the meantime, between these two comings of Christ, Those who repent and believe the gospel are members of Messiah's kingdom of grace. But it takes supernatural enablement to receive that message, which in and of itself is simple. In verse 15, Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. There were plenty of people who heard Jesus physically speaking and they didn't hear because they didn't have ears. Not physical ears, but their ears were stopped. They were deaf to spiritual things. They did not hear. They did not understand the message of the gospel. It was foolishness to them. But if God gives you ears to hear... Then, here. Then Jesus talks about John's faithfulness in verses 16 and 17. John's faithfulness. But to what shall I compare this generation? This generation means um, those Jews in particular that Jesus was sent to and they're, and they're listening to Jesus and by and large they're rejecting Jesus and they're, they're represented by the Jewish religious leaders. We know that everybody didn't reject Jesus but as a generation they did. To what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. So the, there are these two um, opposite things going on. There's the playing of the flute, which is positive and should lead to dancing it's it's upbeat it's good news it's the gospel here's john the baptist saying for example behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world so jesus comes into the world not only to accomplish the gospel but to be the gospel jesus himself is the gospel and people didn't care They didn't care. The flute was played and they didn't dance because they didn't care. They weren't moved by the melody. So that's on one extreme. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we sang a dirge, like a funeral procession. Dun, 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 dun. And you did not mourn. So here is John the Baptist preaching judgment. Remember the ax is laid to the root. There's Jesus preaching judgment. And they weren't moved. They didn't mourn. They didn't care. So it didn't matter how the message was presented to them, positively, negatively, grace, judgment, they just didn't care. That's what he was comparing that generation to. And I have to say, our generation, 21st century, are we in, yes, 21st century, America, This is us. We hear the best news imaginable, the gospel, that Jesus Christ has come into the world sinners to save. That there's deliverance from our guilt. There's salvation. There is redemption in Christ. And people don't care. And... uh. By the same token, there are pronouncements from God about the the consequences of sin and judgment that is to come. And people don't care. We are a generation who are entertained to death. There are so many distractions, so many worries, so many ways to take up our time. And waste our lives and dull our senses to that which matters the most. So we should be able to relate to this. Nothing new under the sun. But at the same time, the unresponsiveness... The antipathy of that generation of Jews highlighted John's faithfulness because it didn't change his message. Even though people didn't receive it by and large, he kept on preaching the same message. They didn't care, but John did. He was determined to be faithful to the Lord because he was a prophet and in that way John modeled Paul's instruction to Christian ministers second Timothy chapter four and verse two preach the word be ready in season and out of season John was faithful and then finally we have his abstinence Jesus talks about John's abstinence, verses 18 and 19. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And that doesn't mean like absolutely no eating or drinking. I mean, he did obviously eat. But he followed a very rigorous ascetic lifestyle. He he ate locusts and wild honey, yuck. So compared to everybody else, compared to those in palaces with their soft clothing and their extravagant buffets and menus. Compared to them, John came neither eating nor drinking. Now you have to drink in order to live. The idea here is wine. He didn't drink wine. And how did they respond to John who came in this, Uh, abstinence mode he has a demon oh well then maybe John should shift gears maybe instead of an abstinence mode he should embrace Christian liberty like by the way Jesus did verse 19 these are the words of Jesus remember The son of man came eating. What does that mean? He was eating more than locusts and wild honey. He was eating whatever was allowed to him as a faithful Jew. And drinking. And that means, by the way, drinking wine. How do I know that? Because of what Jesus says next. And they say, look at him, a glutton for abusing eating, abusing food, and drunkard. You don't become a drunkard by abusing water or grape juice. So Jesus did come eating and drinking wine and he's accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. And also a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Remember, he went into Matthew's house and he sat down and ate with, tax collectors, harlots, and, and sinners. And there was probably, well, there was good food and good wine, no doubt. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds, which is a, a proverb. It's proverbial, and it basically means that a, an opinion, um, a position is vindicated by its results by the by the fruit and even though both John the Baptist and Jesus were on different ends of the Christian liberty spectrum they were both faithful to the kingdom of heaven they were both faithful to the word of god and the fruit of their ministries vindicated how they conducted themselves that that was The point. But John did not need to change his abstinence. This is what his conscience convicted him of. He was called to be a Nazarene, to take a Nazarite vow. And even though people did not respond well to his abstinence, he stuck to it. Because after all, even if he did adopt a more uh, free lifestyle, they'd still reject him. But for the opposite reason, because it's not the eating and drinking or the not eating and drinking that people reject. It's the message. And so, for example, even though Jesus literally says that he drank wine, I'm not here to tell you, go and drink wine. Because the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It doesn't matter in terms of the kingdom of God. What matters is the message and our testimony. So we should keep a good conscience. We should not violate our conscience. And we shouldn't vacillate we should be firm well there you go but there is one big takeaway that we should that we should notice here jesus talks about john the baptist but it is jesus talking about john the baptist it's so interesting to notice this is jesus's opinion his judgment his assessment of John the Baptist. This guy who sent his two disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Jesus extols John the Baptist. That is so amazing to me and it's so encouraging because we know When we fellowship together, a lot of us confide in one another. We know that we blow it constantly. We know that we fall down on the job. Our faith is weak. We fail. We sin. God doesn't cast us aside. Salvation is not a scorecard because it's ultimately not about us. It's about what Jesus has done for sinners like us. It's about the power of God transforming a life. But even a transformed life blows it from time to time. And do you know what God does? God looks at you and he remembers your faithfulness. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10, we read, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. That is true even when you blow it. Even when you're weak, like John the Baptist was weak, Jesus knows who you are. He knows that you're a new creation. He knows that you're a son or a daughter of God. He knows that you're his disciple. And he doesn't throw all of that into the trash can when you let him down because of his amazing grace. Jesus not only saves us from what we've done in the past, he continues to save us today and he will save us to the end. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for John the Baptist, but we thank you for the one whom John the Baptist pointed to, Jesus. We thank you for the wisdom of your word, the uh, amazing power of the prophecies we thank you for how Jesus fulfills it all. And would you help us, Lord, to be encouraged by our Savior and his description of his weak servant, John the Baptist. And would you save souls in this place even today? For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.